0: Welcome back to another episode of the Mind and Body Understanding podcast, hosted by Jeff Farrion, brought to you by and Counseling, LLC, and presented by the Foolproof Entertainment Network. As always, we are here with Jeff Farrion. Jeff, how's it going?
1: Hey, Reg. Very happy to be back here for Anxiety Part 2 with Molly Fields as our guest. And uh, Molly, it's so glad to have you back. Uh, you wanted to talk about your pets. And I want you to give us a little uh, anecdote, as it were. You said something very interesting happened the other day with your pets. So why don't you take it from there?
2: So we have a dog and three hamsters. And uh, the other night I hear from my son's bedroom, Mom, Echo is gone. Echo. I can't find him anywhere. I said, okay, I'm coming. So we take apart the room. I mean, his room is cleaner than it's ever been. We got rid of stuff, we cleaned the entire room, we could not find Echo the hamster. And I mean, it was really What's the hamster's name? Echo. What? Echo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Very could funny. Re- Very funny. Go ahead.
2: And so He just, he starts, he's just super anxious. He's just overwhelmed with anxiety. And he's like, mom, I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. I shouldn't have hamsters. I just, I can't do this too hard to lose things. And I was like, honey, that's just part of life. We got to, we got to deal with anxiety. You can't just say, I'm not going to do the things that make you upset and make you worried and make you concerned. And Mm -hmm. I said, let's sleep on it. And, you know, we'll talk about it in the morning. Mm -hmm. So the next morning he's getting ready for school. And what do you know? Here comes Echo strolling right out from the closet door. <laughs> so, Echo. Yeah. So, but even if Echo hadn't come back, I think it's a it's a good lesson for kids to learn that like things are going to happen that are hard. We might lose pets. We're going to yeah. lose things, but we still got to deal with it. And we've got to learn how to deal with ourselves inside of those situations. So,
1: you didn't make a midnight run to the hamster store or anything? I did not. Okay. So Echo really survived the night out of the cage.
2: Thank goodness, because I don't need four hamsters.
1: We had a hamster, and we named it Ralph the Rat. And Ralph bit everybody. And so I made Ralph disappear one day.
2: You really had a rat? (laughs)
1: No, we called him Ralph the Rat. That was his name. (laughs) He bit everybody. We had to let him go. Mm. He had to be free in the wild. (laughs) Wild (laughs) hamsters. I I was not anxious about that at all. Sorry, folks, you animal lovers. Anyways, <laughs> we're back talking about anxiety, and I think we're going to get into greater depth in this show, and we're going to start with what triggers anxiety. So, Molly, I'm throwing it right to you. What triggers anxiety?
2: Almost anything. All kinds of things. That's what's so uncomfortable about, it, about anxiety is it's unforeseen when it's going to sneak up on you, when something is going to trigger you. Um so it's, it's kind of like a grenade comes and gets thrown in your mind when, when a trigger happens. And um, it can be something from the past. It can be something, yeah, it's mostly something from the past that's happened that's bad, that mm-hmm. triggers a fear or a, a, a negative emotion that then can drive anxiety. So, um, But we're, a lot of times anxiety at the heart of it is um, remembering catastrophe or rehearsing it. So we're either worrying about what has happened or worrying about what could happen. And so okay. managing that is going to help.
1: Well, you said to me something about throwing an anxiety grenade, and that sounds so interesting. So why don't you tell me what that is? That's
2: what that's what a trigger does. What it does is it whatever's out here that's going on that like causes some kind of memory or some kind of reaction, mm. it's like a grenade comes inside your head and it just kind of explodes in there and causes all kinds of... Reactions can that be and,
1: self-inflicted? Like, can people do that to themselves?
2: Yeah, I mean, a memory can do that. You know, I could be sitting here thinking about something without anything happening around me, and I can yeah. be a hot mess.
1: So you can trigger yourself. Can, do people do that on purpose?
2: Well, therapy kind of does that sometimes.
1: Well, okay. <laughs> that so would be so a purpose This is about therapy, This is about coping and therapy skills today, <laughs> and you know, uh, treatment. So what's the difference between, I mean, what's the purpose first of triggering someone? And then what's the difference between us purposely triggering them and them maybe accidentally or on purpose triggering themselves?
2: That may or not have been too many questions at once.
1: So what is the purpose (laughs) of triggering someone
2: in the Uh, therapy session? Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, I throw grenades all the time. And uh, the reason I throw grenades is to see what's going on in there. We've got to figure out what's going on inside of them and how it and how it happens, so that then we can change that process. Because so, how do
1: you find out what's going on by throwing an anxiety <clears> grenade?
2: Because then they're going to go into the behavior or the patterns that they already go into regularly, yeah. and I'm going to get to see it, and we're going to talk through it. They're going to become a narrator of their own experience. And the goal,
1: what's the goal of that?
2: Is to change the way their brain processes things in order to change. The future of how they process that. Is it
1: also to help them recognize that that's what's happening?
2: Sure. Yeah.
1: I'm going to make you, I'm going to trigger you so that you understand that this is what makes you feel this way. Recognize how you feel, and then we're going to talk about how to deal with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're
2: trying to always understand the message that anxiety is sending us and the methodology it's using to send it.
1: Okay. So. We'll go back to treatment and the relationship with yourself. Obviously, 99% of what you and I talk about is how people relate to themselves. And I want you to go into more detail maybe on how this relates to dealing with anxiety.
2: Well, people don't even really know what they're thinking about. Like, one of the first things I have people do in sessions, like maybe the second or third session, is I'll, like, give them a sheet of paper with a brain on it, and I'll tell them to write down in the next week everything they think about and everything they feel. Like, in really specific thoughts, not, like, food, vacation, work. So really specific, yeah. Like, you know, what the hell's wrong with me? Or why did this person say that? Or, you know... Or something that they obsess about. That's really specific things. But people are like so intimidated by that because hardly anyone thinks about what they think about. Right. And that's a critical thing. And then to connect the emotion with that. Like, okay, now what emotion does that trigger? Well, lots of times in that brain when it comes back, it's got anxiety, worry, you know, all over it. All kinds of negative emotions all over it. And they're always surprised that, like, this is the stuff that's going on in their head because. They just have never taken inventory. There's no There's no one's ever yeah. asked them, hey, tell me what's going on in your head. Well, right
1: now I'm thinking about, do I think about what I'm thinking about? I mean, I'm
2: serious. That's what right. I'm doing. I'm
1: like analyzing myself. That, I guess. I mean, I, I suppose sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes I'm just doing things and not thinking about it. But I'm, Of course, there's got to be something going on for me to process doing something. Right. So but there's the, always gotta be a thought.
2: And the way to avoid anxiety is to have intentional thoughts so that there's not room for the anxiety. Okay. So like for me, because I have so much stuff to think about, cause yeah. I got over hundred clients, I have three kids, a building, all kinds of things. So there's like a lot of things competing for my brain space, which is limited. <laughs> and so i like i in the morning will think like okay this this first hour in the morning or on the way to work i have to think about this like what am i going to do about this discipline issue you know with my kid or i got to think about this client and how to help them with this and so i'm all the time being very intentional with what i think about so there's not a ton of room for me to have other things come in is that that what you
1: call come
2: compartmentalizing
1: compartmentalizing there you go my my language today is just bad I don't know why what's going on You am usually very good
2: yeah it is what yeah compartmentalizing is really critical to being I think to being successful in life because we can't have things getting in the way you know like we sure. need to have brain space look I'm over here and then I'm over here and then I'm over here and I'm not even talking about literally I'm talking about up in here
1: so being able to do that is that like a step-by-step uh, educational process with a client? to get them to start thinking that way, or? That doesn't sound
2: very interesting. I try to keep it interesting.
1: So what's interesting, how do you make it interesting?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's a process, but everybody's so different. So some people I have to use a ton of humor and some people want a whiteboard and some people just want to talk and some people want, you know, pictures. (laughs) I mean, everybody wants a different thing when they're constructing their, how they're gonna do their life in their head. So it just depends. But, and that's why that originally what we were talking about in the first um, podcast about um, really getting to understand the client and the client really feeling understood is so critical because the better I understand you, the better I can know how to be a mind ninja and get in there and like, you know, help you change it.
1: Absolutely. I feel the same way. I mean, you obviously have to know them for a while. And after I've been with a client, let's say five sessions, it's different. 10 sessions is even stronger. Then after, you know, a year, You feel like you're ingrained with that person, and you can almost say anything and hopefully get positive movement with them. Um, And it all goes back to that fear of self again, I think, anxiety. Isn't it true that anxiety is just being afraid of yourself in some way?
2: Yeah, and we're not afraid of things we understand.
1: Okay, go further with that.
2: I'm never afraid of anything I understand. If I understand how, you know... The plane works that I'm in. If I'm taking a flight, I'm not as afraid of it because I'm like, well, I get how it stays in the air. If I don't understand it, I'm freaking like, I'm passing. I'm driving.
1: Do you know how a plane stays in the air, Molly?
2: Well, kind Can of. Can you
1: describe that it's, to us uh, scientifically? My point
2: is, it's been explained to me, <laughs> and I have enough of an understanding that I am it going amazes
1: wins. me every time a giant plane gets <laughs> off the ground and flies. I'll tell you that, whether I'm in it or not.
0: The air moves slower over the top of the wings than it. Because yeah, under the wings and that creates points. And Thanks, that's Reggie. That's general principle. I appreciate
1: it. But they still weigh what, 20 tons or more? I mean, it's just ridiculous. I agree,
0: piece. it's incredible, but.
1: Got to be something with the engine. I don't know.
2: So, so, so understanding ourselves is critical. Sorry, the, Molly. The, <laughs> I'm just keeping us on course. All right, yeah. <laughs> So understanding ourselves is critical. Now there's still bad stuff that's going to happen in life, and so it can't just be, "Oh, well, I understand that this is a horrible situation, and I'm okay with it." Sure, right? But but understanding is pretty critical because then we're willing to look into it. I can look in there, and I can keep adding information to my.
1: Well, like all right, so I'll use my parents as an example here. Didn't have a great relationship with my parents. I love them, but I didn't have a great relationship. But under pressure, they always seem to be more clear, precise, and able to work than they would be without pressure. I don't know if that has anything to do with uh, coping with anxiety or dealing with things like that or understanding things, but is that true that sometimes people have less anxiety or are able to act more precisely under pressure than without pressure?
2: Yeah. And I don't know how to explain that. (laughs) but it's true yeah it's a thing
1: is that anxiety related that kind of idea
2: yeah i think that's part of what we were talking about earlier with sometimes there's positives of anxiety yeah you know keeps us sharp keeps us ready vigilant those kind of things so yeah i think it does and you know research in the last year since the pandemics happened that people who are who just have always had anxiety actually did better during the pandemic than people who had never had anxiety some of the my clients who were the most anxious, just in general, in general most anxious, yeah. were actually really did super well with the pandemic because they had experience and practice. I call it managing. being in their
1: wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, they're in their wheelhouse in the pandemic.
2: Yeah, so that's a thing. So to me, you know, I don't know what your parents' history is, but somehow they had had some practice with
1: dealing with tragedy. Yeah,
2: with you know bad stuff going down, and they knew how to how to manage it when it did. And so that's what I'm saying. It, there are some good things about anxiety.
1: Emotional elasticity is another thing that you brought up uh, to me. What what is that?
2: Right. So okay. So yeah. So when I said that, um, it's good to understand it, but we're still going to have bad stuff that happens. So this is where the we need the emotional elasticity for the bad stuff that happens because mm-hmm. we want to live big. We want to live in an emotional. It, with a big emotional band, like we can, we can go all the way out in the good and the bad. We can be super excited and live at the top of the mountain, mm-hmm. but we also are going to have times where we're living all the way out in like the darkest, deepest pits and holes, right? But the reality is as long as we can bounce, as long as there's elasticity and that mm-hmm. elastic still works and we can sp- spool all the way out and come all the way back, mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. Because if we're coming back, we know we can go all the way out. But if I'm afraid that I can't get back, like, oh, I can't, I'm going to be, you know, in the fetal is just crying forever. I'm not going to want to do that. But if I know I can, like...
1: So the stretch is going to the limits of whether it's positive or negative. Yep. And then snapping back is being able to come to, I, I don't, we don't normally use the word normal in counseling, but to a rather safe place. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Stretch, I'm either having a great time, like first time riding a roller coaster, uh... Overcoming my fear of the high dive and then when I get out of the pool from the high dive, I'm able to center myself and be Relaxed.
2: Yeah bounce but, back.
1: Sure And how does that help manage anxiety?
2: Because People know people because if we're scared of ourselves, or we're scared of our emotions that they're gonna get the best of us knowing that this process will work that this we're gonna get back to center that. You're going to be willing to go out there. So you have to to have the understanding
1: that you'll come back to that center place. Yeah, and The non-elastic place, like the unstretched part where it's just safe base. Is there another word for, I mean. You
2: should come up with one. Yeah,
1: like home. You know, I'm stretched to my limit, now I'm back home. Stretching my limit, back home. I don't know if that's sticking or not right in
2: let us know (laughs) But the the good thing about therapy because it's a microcosm of the rest of the world we can practice that in session so I can take people into their darkest memories or their darkest thoughts or darkest moments and then bring them back we can be laughing and crying in the same five minutes and that's really empowering to people because they're like oh yeah that's a thing I can do that and then I can go do the dishes like you know it's not I'm not like you know stuck
1: sure I don't know if I'd go bungee jumping and then go straight to the kitchen or anything, but I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> all right. Um, cliche alert, uh, commonly used word alert, overused word no, alert. alert, mindfulness. Everybody's talking about mindfulness, and I think it, for to 100 people, it means 100 different things. I'd like once and for all, Molly, for you to bring some kind of conclusion as to what in the heck mindfulness is, and let's relate it to anxiety.
2: Yeah. Well, and the reason, what, and mindfulness is so critical to anxiety because it's staying in the now. Okay. Mindfulness is being right here, right now, and nowhere else.
1: Be in the now. You'll never afford it. What movie's that? I forget.
2: And anxious people are never right here, right now, in the moment. Where are they? They're back there in a bad memory, or they're um, out out in the future, you know, thinking about what the bad stuff that's going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. What are some of those things we call them? Mind readers, or what's the other one? Um, uh, Fortune tellers. Yeah, fortune tellers. They're fortune fortune telling.
2: Well, catastrophizing.
1: Yeah, rehearsing their catastrophe. How do you rehearse catastrophe? What's that mean?
2: Well, Brene Brown in her book talks about foreboding joy, which is where, like, she'll have something that's really great. Like, she talked about one time about one of her kids was going to prom, and she was, they were out in the yard taking pictures, and everything was beautiful. And then she started thinking about her kid, like, in a car accident that night, like, yeah. crashing. And she's like, why am I doing this? Why am I wrecking this perfectly good moment with this tragic situation that isn't even likely to happen? Yeah. So she calls it foreboding joy. I sure. call it rehearsing catastrophe, whatever, it doesn't matter. But okay. um, that's the kind of thing
1: foreboding joy. Reggie, what's the definition of foreboding?
0: Usually I'm better than that. Uh, Foreboding. Uh, Foreshadowing the negative. Okay.
1: So taking joy and turning it upside down. That's what she means? Interesting. 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 So we have to build confidence. Confidence in clients that have anxiety.
2: Wait, let's go back to mindfulness for a minute. Okay. So, the mindfulness thing is so critical and there are so many apps and so many resources now for mindfulness and I know that is probably cliche too but there are some really good things where people can do just little meditations. I know people are like, I don't want to meditate, I don't like meditating, I don't even know how to meditate. But like, even a little tiny three minute thing or even just having a mantra or even just having a, I'm just gonna breathe for five seconds even if it feels like, kind of like, why am I doing this? It's reconditioning. It's reconditioning and at some point that reconditioning will take hold. Yeah. And so I always tell people, you can be cynical about it. You can even like, you know, mock it a little bit. Just do it.
1: <laughs> well, the whole, the whole uh, opening ocean sounds and everything that we have for this show comes from my love of being at the ocean and being relaxed by that whole thing. So I have the Calm app and I turn on the Calm app and I have it automatically go to Beach. And all it has is maybe a seagull every once in a while, but it's just the rush of the waves. And I can just look at that, like, focus on it so I'm there. And as you said, three minutes, even one minute, even 30 seconds will take you from a heightened, elevated state of mind to a more relaxed state of mind just in a couple of minutes. And that's calm, and I'm not getting paid to advertise that, but (laughs) I think it's a fairly decent app. Now, they do have some extended packages on Calm that like have to be paid for in addition but i think just the general Calm app you can get for free, download it, CALM
0: and Headspace is another one that advertises on a lot of podcast networks.
2: And Headspace is good for guys cuz it's kind of i think it's got a more cognitive like a more relatable. Yeah. It's really good for guys, i think.
1: Is there anything else about mindfulness that you want to talk about? I don't think so. Okay. Well, let's talk about confidence and skill building.
2: Yeah, so any of any kind of technique or tool or resource people are going to use, they're going to have to have the confidence that it works. Okay. And so, um, building that confidence, letting people experiment and practice things to the degree that they feel confident is critical, or they will not be able to retain it and continue it when they're not, you know, coming to counseling anymore, or when something legitimately bad does happen, which you know is likely.
1: So, are we able to build confidence right there in the therapy room, like in the session?
2: Yeah, through the process, through the, you know, months or however, you know, the the commitment over time of seeing them through and then, you know, just being really positive about it and believing in them.
1: So, what's a good example of someone that has an anxiety issue and them getting confident about overcoming it?
2: You mean like...
1: Let's say that uh, I'm anxious when I go to, I don't know, school. So when I'm in grad school, I was in grad school. So when I'm in grad school, I get anxious when I'm in class. And I come to you and I say, I'm anxious when I go to class. What would be a good example of, let's say we've worked together for a while now, and how would I show confidence and skill? What skills would I have developed to be able to go to class and not feel as anxious?
2: So that would be all kind of internal work, right? That would be like... Because they were still going. they were. It wasn't like they didn't go to class. Right. So it would just be all them being able to feel good about it and not feel like they can't make and how it. how do you lead like, them to that point? Well, it's just restructuring. It's the reprocessing the internal world. It's the changing how they see themselves. Yeah. And not being so freaked out by their internal world and how it looks and how it functions and being able to.
1: I mean, do you have to have a better understanding of why they feel uncomfortable going to class?
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, so that reason itself might change the process or the coping mechanism or whatever you're going to prescribe.
2: Yeah, yeah, all the me search is going to help them have a better sense of what they need to do to change to feel more comfortable.
1: Right, so you say something about letting go of feeling like our brain is accomplishing something.
2: Yeah. So, one of the reasons why if someone has really hard stuff going on, like they've got a sick parent or partner or kid or they have or there's a pandemic or there's or they're, they have a really hard job or whatever, whatever it is, a lot of times people hold on to anxiety because they feel like it's it's what I can do. I can't I can't make this person better. I can't fix the situation, but I can like do on it and I can think about it and I can plan for everything and I can be vigilant and I can be ready and I can like and somehow I'm in this with them and I'm making it better and And I'm helping and it just doesn't
1: and it makes them do worse, feel worse not accomplish anything
2: just doesn't accomplish anything and it all probably ultimately makes them less present for whatever the situation is that they're having a hard time with
1: so how do you get them to let go of that thought
2: well that helping them understand what they're doing I mean if, if I start to get a sense that like, oh my gosh, this is futile. I'm 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 replaying and replaying and replaying and it's not doing anything, I'm gonna start rejecting it. But You're they don't whipping even...
1: yourself into a frenzy. Is that something that's relative?
2: Sure. Let's go Wh- with that.
1: Whipping yourself into a frenzy, Reg. Go ahead.
2: He looks frenzied, doesn't he? No, he's he's fine.
1: <laughs> no cameras to show it, but he's fine. Um so that, that I've heard that term before. So people can get themselves all worked up yep. thinking that they're helping themselves and ultimately they're not helping themselves.
2: Or that they're helping the situation. You know, somehow oh, yeah. somehow, like, okay, I feel bad because they're sick or they've got these problems, so I'm going to carry, oh, my I'm gonna gosh, carry it with example.
1: them. I have a total example. My first job out of college, I worked for a public relations firm, and we always had deadlines, right? And we had this woman that was our copy editor, and whenever the copier would break, she would you would think that the, it was World War Nine and, like, everything. But she was like, oh, my God, like, running around. It's like, the copier's broke. Why don't we just go to Kinko's and copy it over there? Why are we doing this? And she would just flip out. And um, she wasn't helping anybody. And she thought she was, she, I, I could tell in her mind she thought she was being very accurate and helping everything. And she was just losing it. I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. What about changing the cognitive loop? What's that?
2: Yeah, so sometimes I'll actually use a whiteboard and draw like an actual cycle and talk about like, yeah. okay, you think this and then you think this and then you do behave this way and then that behavior creates this. Diagrams are always yeah. good. Yeah, and so just to once people see that, then we, decide, we discuss where are we going to disrupt the pattern? Where are we going to decide to not do that thing? I don't care where we do it, do you but change stop the doing it. Just disrupt the pattern. So, like, you did this and this and this. Okay, at number three, we're not going to do that anymore. So we're okay. gonna see what happens when you don't do that, or you do this instead, mm. and that's that's powerful to people. It can be now, a game changer. Do
1: you find they skip three and just guard the four?
2: No, usually there's something they can do instead, so like a really intentional and intentional.
1: So page. you're gonna you're gonna take their pattern and you're gonna replace one of the negatives with something that's positive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And how do you make sure that they do it? How do you check their homework, as it were?
2: Well, sometimes I'll say. Do two of these, these cycles for me while you're gone and bring them back. Like, draw it out yeah. and bring it back f- for the next time. Two circumstances or situations that came up that you can draw it out and we'll talk about yeah. it. So that's kind of how we check it.
1: Here's a sidebar, just real quick. Do you find it easy or hard to get people to do homework and, and counseling?
2: I find it pretty easy because I try to make it really interesting usually and they're like usually kind of intrigued like I want to figure that out or I want to or that's kind of interesting you know like I'm I'm up for that kind of a thing but once in a while you know someone's like I've just got too much going on I can't add another thing to do this week you know. Well I you
1: know I've been a teacher for so long I always could tell the people that weren't good students in high school by how (laughs) how willing and able they are to do the simple tasks I give them to do between sessions but. This is just brought up the thought because if I'm trying to work with someone that's already anxious and I'm giving them more stuff to do, are they really going to do it? I mean, do you find that they do?
2: Yeah, especially anxious people because anxious people are usually want to be on top of things. (laughs) They don't
1: want to, they're worried about how you think of them.
2: Yeah, and they're usually, and they're somewhat kind of pleasers. So they're like, okay, she wants me to do this. I'll do this. (laughs) All right,
1: so the last note that you have for this section of our show has a word that we're not allowed to use in counseling, but I'll use it on the podcast. Normalizing crazy. So how do we normalize what would be out of the normal? That's what I'll say.
2: Yeah, I, I think that people tend to think that anything that's dysfunctional or anything that they feel like is is not what we would call normal is not okay. And to me, everybody's got, you know, disturbing thoughts. Everybody has things, intrusive things that come into their minds that are like, what is wrong with me? And so, you know, I try to really normalize that and just be like, me too. You know, like sometimes I feel that, you know, sometimes I think this. Sometimes I'll say things, you know, like sometimes I want to poke my kid's eyes out. You know, I mean, I would never do that, right? But sometimes we have really negative thoughts that we think. And so it's really helpful to people to hear someone say, you know, everybody's got these things. You're... You're, you're but doesn't that
1: sound like kind of cliche or like you're just trying to pacify them as opposed to helping them just to tell them that everybody has it? I mean, that that to me sounds like, almost, and I know it's not false, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Doesn't it sound like almost like you're trying to lie to them to make them feel better?
2: It would for, yeah, it would for certain clients. It would feel that way. But for clients who were spooled out into this shame shame cycle and feeling bad about themselves or really have held it all in. Don't tell anybody any of the bad stuff that they feel. It's revolutionary to be told, like, it's okay. Like, other people think that way, and that doesn't make you some, you know, deviant human being. Like, it's not it's not diagnosable. You well, know? the
1: idea of validation was hammered into my head during internship.
2: Yeah, so that's you what it is. You can't
1: invalidate, no matter... I mean, no matter how, let's use the word again. Crazy, someone's thought might be, you can't tell them that they're wrong because that's what they think. And so it's what they think. So you have to deal with what they think. And am I correct in this? Yeah. And so even if it's outlandish, like if I start my car, the oil will all leak out. Or something, I don't know not. I don't know if it's a good example, but that's what I'm nervous about something going wrong when I start my car. So... Obviously, that's, if the car is running properly, that's not a problem, but, but they think that. So, where do you go with that?
2: They're coming in, presenting that they're worried about their car. Well,
1: let's just, whatever it is. If, if I turn this machine on, it's going to break. I have this great fear of things breaking. Yeah. And so, obviously, that's not accurate, because there's pro- it may happen, but that's not accurate that it happens every time. How, well, do you, how do you deal with something? I, I don't know if my example is good. But
2: I think getting them to the point that they invalidate it yeah. is important rather than me just sort of like slapping it down and being like, that's absurd. Well, like, so is it. They can get to the but, point. But is
1: the conversation more, why do you feel that way? Or tell me, you know, what your thought process is in coming to that conclusion? Yeah,
2: just for questions, investigating. How did more you me come search. to that
1: conclusion? Yeah. And what makes you feel that that's true? Instead of saying, "Oh no, that's not true," right? Because th- I, in learning how to do this, I've accidentally invalidated a statement from clients here, or there, maybe once or twice in five years, or how long I've been working on this. Um, and they look at you very strangely if you do that. They look at you like you're lying to me. You know what I'm thinking is absolutely correct. How can you say this to me? You know, and so I get it, even if it's this. The maybe the you think is the silliest thing in the world we do want to normalize it but we have to at least give them the credit or the, the credit of the doubt for the beginning that they do think that yeah and so this is valid to them mm-hmm. and then try to work from there
2: right come from their reality yeah we need to move into their reality and then help them move out of That unhealthy reality. I
1: find that difficult sometimes, personally, because, you know, I'm a fixer kind of guy sometimes. And I don't want them to stay in a a negative, unreal situation. But they're there, you know, and I have to accept that and then work with them there.
2: Well, and, yeah, and ultimately we want them to fix themselves anyway. Right. We, you know, which is trickier work, but more rewarding for them and for us.
0: Absolutely. But a lot of that, and it's funny because we've been doing had uh, a fair amount of professional development at work lately around leading with empathy etc mm-hmm. and one of the things that we talk about in that in terms of the best way to build those relationships the first step is acknowledging that there are multiple realities from the standpoint of your perception is your reality yep. yeah and so being able to understand that you can hear something from someone and be like that's that's crazy right being able to understand for them that it's not. Right. It's figuring out why they feel that way. Right. And that's how you can start to get into the conversations around either changing that perception or helping them dive deeper into examining kind of their own thoughts on
1: that. Yes. That was good. Thanks, Reg.
0: Every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, you know, sometimes uh, corporations bring in people that know what they're talking about in professional development, sometimes they bring in cry, uh Crocs? Quacks? I don't know. People that don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) The last note that we have for this episode talks about purifying and pacifying behaviors. What's that?
2: Right, so when we're uncomfortable or when we're anxious or when we're having problems, we are going to choose behaviors based on those feelings. And we're either going to choose, we're almost always choosing either pacifying or purifying behaviors. Pacifying behaviors would be like distracting like, but that's really just pushing the ball under the water and it's going to pop back up later because you can distract yourself from whatever from whatever issue is over here, but you're going, it's going to come back. So you might, you might as well just deal with it directly. A purifying behavior <laughs> would be like restorative things, like some of the things that we've talked about today, mm-hmm. like meditating or, you know, therapy or working out, things that are going to build the person versus just distract from the situation.
1: Okay, so just to, because whenever there's two words that are really close like this, I always kind of have to hear it two or three times to really get clear on it. Pacifying is just making them feel better for the moment, but you're not really help handling any real issue. And purifying is something that might be a repeated um, activity they can do to help um, change the mentality of the situation and change their ideology of having anxious thoughts. Right. Okay, so you don't want to pacify, and you want to help the client purify. You
2: want to build, build. not distract from.
1: Yeah. And,
2: uh, and anxiety can be really helpful in lots of ways. We can learn from it, we can grow from it, we can change from it, we can empathize from it. There are lots of good things about it, so we want to, you know, figure out how to build out of it and not just deflect away from it.
1: Yeah. I don't know, I mean, I think this has been excellent, Molly. I think that uh, we've really talked about and touched on a lot of different things that uh, people can, A, take a bite of and and really digest as far as understanding themselves and coming to a better understanding of why they feel anxious. And I also think that there's some things that they can grow with as far as, you know, the activities they can do. Let's give them one good um, way to cope. What what would be your go to if a person comes in and they're very anxious? What's a good coping strategy you give?
2: I mean like
1: Coping with being anxious, like getting overly anxious. Like if they're in that moment and they're overly anxious, what's a good coping strategy? I think
2: coming up with a mantra that they okay. say to themselves okay. that's healthier. And, and even coming up with a physical process.
1: How many words would you put in a mantra? Eight. Eight? Really? Wow, that's a lot. I was, like, I was thinking, like, two or three or one. I mean, really. One? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Give me a one-word mantra. Well,
1: I practice Transcendental Meditation, and the mantra is one word.
2: Oh, it is? Yeah. That's a thing?
1: Yeah. It's a thing.
2: Did you know that was a thing? It I works very well. There's
1: <laughs> millions of people doing it, so it does work. And you're not doing it, but I do it. But, like, eight? So what would be a... It's like a sentence. Let's see. I am very successful at completing my task. Here's
2: one. I am enough for this moment, and this moment is enough for me. Wow. I actually have people repeat that a lot. That sounds like
1: a song lyric.
2: I am enough for this moment, and this moment is enough for me. I
1: am enough for this moment, and this moment is enough
2: for (laughs) me. So it's validating.
0: Not the song I would have gone with. I don't know what it is.
2: So it's validating yourself. And it's validating the sure. experience that you're in.
1: I am good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me.
2: Okay, Stuart smiling. Right.
1: I mean, well, is that is that valid? Where's is that your some- mirror? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> is that something that I mean? Or they were joking when they were doing that? But isn't that really like? True that you should tell yourself positive things. Well,
2: sure. That but but the reason that was so funny was because it was sort of um not very meaty. Like it didn't have much under it and he, you know, was being dorky and like, you know but like when people really get to know themselves and have a real understanding of their identity and how they work and what their giftings are and what their strengths and weaknesses are, then they can really validate themselves in a way that's like super like meaty and believable in good and then they can go out and do the things that they want to do in the world they don't have to live small
1: and then they have overcome a lot of that fear of themselves and they should be far less anxious yes on that note i think it's a good place to stop molly thank you so much i always enjoy talking to you no matter if it's in the office here wherever and i thought that this was a great show and i appreciate uh everything that you do
2: i've enjoyed it too thanks for having me
1: you're welcome Reggie, that's about it for this uh, show. So hopefully all those uh, people out there will check us the next time. So this is Jeff Farian signing off for Mind and Body Understanding.